Well, hello everyone. My name is Lydia. This is Carla. And this is... No Librarians Allowed. Well, thank you for joining us again. We're happy to share that we are now on Google Play Podcast, so you're welcome to subscribe. Today we wanted to talk about a few recent publications in library technology media world. The first one is uh, an article from The Guardian called Risotto Robotics and Virtual Reality, How Canada Created the World's Best Libraries. So this article has been making rounds. Yeah, I feel like I've been seeing everyone retweet it or like post it on Facebook and being like, hooray, we've been recognized. So Carla, can you give a brief summary of what uh, the article yeah, is about? Yeah, well, I, I mean, they're referencing a study that was done by, hold on, scrolling, scrolling. Oh, researchers from Heinrich Hein University, Dusseldorf. Uh, it says, have ranked Canada as having the best public library systems among 30 major cities included. So they don't actually like link to the study or anything, but basically they were looking at a bunch of public library systems in major cities. The three Canadian ones that they looked at, uh, Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver came in in the top 10. So the article really kind of seems like a love letter to TPL, <laughs> which is very sweet. And uh, basically it's just like this reporter goes into TPL and you know, sees the makerspace, gets a tour, has a quick interview with the CEO talking about the VR and the, the authors that are coming in and kind of all the things that TPL is doing to kind of keep relevant and just do interesting things that people will be excited about for libraries. In particular, I noticed there's a mention of the Toronto Reference Library hosting handathons mm -hmm. in which school groups use 3D printers along with Arduino kits to make working prosthetic hands. So combining the fabrication and making of parts with the manipulation and uh, controllers. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's pretty neat. I think that's a really cool application and a very thoughtful uh, project for students to be working on in a makerspace where sometimes it can just be like, well, I mean, we may talk about this in a little bit in relation to Papier coming up, sneak, sneak peek where the discussion is going. <laughs> but I think that's a really great application and great to have that sort of real life challenge that's meaningful and that, you know, has a real world application. Creative play is great, but... I think it's nice to have a program that kids can actually take on that kind of challenge, almost like a real-life hackathon kind sure. of pro problem-solving. Yeah. yeah, using the yeah. tools that we, certainly me and you, have been exploring and, and advocate for. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was just really interesting coming out of The Guardian, too. I think, like you were saying uh, about sort of the climate of British libraries, how many cuts they faced and kind of the closures, and the article mentioned how Canadians react really strongly to any threats of closing the public library. However, they also mentioned that there's been, we're in the Ford era again in Ontario. So, you know, Toronto has faced provincial cuts already and who knows what's going to happen. I mean, he's already made kind of blustery threats against, you know, Atwood and the system and all that stuff. So, so we'll see what comes from that. But sort of this idea as a maybe as a way of countering or being financially stable or that's not really what I'm trying to say like as a way of sort of stop gapping or mitigating against that and as a way of staying relevant uh, they mentioned some new commercial partnerships that they're working on so TPL obviously is working with Alphabet or like Google's parent company to implement the sidewalk labs in the Toronto kind of 
harbor front or lakefront. And um, the other one that they mention is uh, with Cisco Canada. I'm actually not sure. It says to continue providing cutting edge technologies. I don't actually know what the details of that are. Do you know what it is? Not yeah. really. So this idea of the library kind of getting into more of a commercial space in order to keep on innovating and maintain its relevance and maintain kind of a cutting edge status, regardless of provincial funding or regardless of public funds. So I think that's a really interesting dynamic that's there. There may be a version of this article from Canadian publications, but as far as we know and what we've seen so far, it is by The Guardian. In the UK, within the context of what I would argue, UK's decline in valuing of the ideas of public good and public spaces. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Canada, I think the public definitely values libraries. It's, I don't know if it's taken for granted, but for now they have enjoyed overwhelming support, which is good. Like as a society, we are on board. Nevertheless, I suppose it, it isn't a surprise that in the UK where funding has been cut for many public institutions, one natural direction is to look for partnerships with mm -hmm. corporations. And as public institutions, I think we do have a responsibility to carefully assess and discuss the risks in things like data privacy and use of user data mm -hmm. that's collected. And Sidewalk Labs uh, is currently facing that in Toronto with the Waterfront Project. Oh, yeah. And I see updates from that every week from my friend Bianca Wiley, who is the head of Open Data Network the node in Toronto. So essentially, the, these issues are continuing, I think, in many cities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's there's obviously opportunities there, but as you say, like it's fraught with a lot of risk and there's really a lot of careful consideration that has to go into it for libraries before embarking on that kind of project. I guess related to the ideas discussed in the article, I want to bring up a little bit more industry, slightly less accessible publication that has been shared with me recently. It's not a 2018 publication. I think it came out in 2017. And it's called the NMC Horizon Report on K-12 Education. So specifically focusing on the changes happening in a society and technology, but focusing on preparing K-12 educators, so schools, on things like STEM, coding, robotics, learning analytics, so mm -hmm. basically digital ways to spy on kids, no, to <laughs> assess learning and, and monitor learning. So there's two reports, there's kind of the executive summary or broader perspectives, and what I found fascinating is, so from 2017 to 2021, this report breaks down, you know, the short-term future, I guess, and tries to categorize the kinds of challenges that we are facing in North America into short-term, so what's achievable, you know, in the next one to two years, midterm, which they put up to 2020, which, you know, we're almost there and beyond. So some of the challenges in the short term include things like coding as a literacy, the rise of STEM learning. I would argue, actually, in Canada, we're pretty good on these things. They're not necessarily new. Midterm things would be growing focus on measuring learning. So mm -hmm. we are obsessed with assessment and evaluation. We've discussed this on previous mm -hmm. episodes. I think no sector of society is immune to it. And certainly it's coming up in education as well. Redesigning learning spaces. So addressing the fact that space can facilitate learning. And long-term things include ideas related to advancing culture of innovation and deep 
deeper learning approaches. That doesn't mean much to me. <laughs> deeper learning approach, okay. But what I also liked is some degree of realistic addressing of what they call significant challenges impeding technology adoption in K-12 education. Solvable challenges include things like authentic learning experiences and improving digital literacy. Difficult ones include rethinking the roles of teachers and teaching computational thinking, so going a little bit more abstract and beyond, mm -hmm. kind of meta. Yeah. And I love the fact that they use the term wicked problems. We, we do see that in society. I think there's been some you know, probably TED Talks mm -hmm. <laughs> on wicked problems. And those are categorized as those that are complex to even define, much less address. Mm. So in here, for K-12, the wicked problems include the achievement gap and sustaining innovation through leadership changes, whatever that means. Yeah. Does that mean people are retiring and there's new leaders coming in? Like, I don't really know what that means. But the different areas that they talk about, you mentioned like robotics, coding, computational thinking, like those all seem like pretty familiar buzzwords when it comes to tech. But this achievement gap is something that I haven't really heard much about. So that's interesting. I imagine, as I understand, this report is coming out of the U.S. So the context is different because U.S. does fund social programs differently from Canada. And of course, healthcare is, is a major issue. Mm -hmm. So when they talk about the achievement gap in the more detailed toolkit, um, so I'll just read, I guess, how they describe it. The achievement gap is often described as an observed disparity in academic performance between student groups, especially as defined by socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, or gender. Environmental factors such as peer pressure, student tracking, negative stereotyping, and test bias intensify this challenge. Interestingly, in this report, there are also discussion questions provided. So some questions include things like, how much do we know and understand about the impacts of achievement gap in communities that our school districts serve? What can our districts do to help children overcome the obstacles of poverty, such as lack of access to quality health care? And this is where I see U.S a little bit more strongly differentiate from mm -hmm. Canada in that access to health care and living in poverty will dramatically affect, uh, you know, I guess this achievement gap or performance. But of course, U.S. also has so much more differentiation in private, charter, mm. public schools. Yeah. I'll just read a couple of other discussion questions. Is there a greater role for technology in our efforts to close the achievement gap? Mm. And how can we work more successfully with families and community-based organizations and partners? So overall, those questions are not too biased or dramatic. They are pretty reasonable, I would say. There again, there's this discussion of technology in social issues. Yeah, it's kind of weird tangent. That question surprises me in this section. Like, I, I feel like... It's strange to jump to technology as the solution for that when we're talking about how we can level a playing field. And this idea that this is the Silicon Valley idea that tech will solve all social ills and like, you know, they're the great saviors of the modern era. They can develop an app that will sol like solve climate change and we're all good. So it, it's almost this like reductionist approach to, as you say, complex social issues, these like wicked problems. And it just seems like such a funny place to start start with that issue. And maybe there's a reason for it. Like maybe the reason that we do that is because 
we can't conceive of working on broader social issues in a way that's that's actually going to solve the problem because it's like political will it's maybe changing values like changing worldviews I, I don't know or or maybe even things that are like not very sexy like a lunch program at a school or like a, a breakfast program for people is like probably something that could go a long way and and why does it have to be a tech thing like yes it's related to tech and that's something that I think libraries are really aware of like access equal access that's a huge thing especially when we're talking about technologies and that's something that we really take pride in I've thought recently about can we go farther and could libraries look at you know I, I know of some that have done things like provided lunch during their summer reading club right. because you know, like many public libraries, maybe especially urban public libraries, I don't know, I'm just guessing, there's kids that are there all day because they can't go home. Their parents are probably are working. And so they are literally at the library all day and we know they're not leaving for lunch. If our, let's take something even innocuous like Summer Reading Club, our goal is to prevent the, the slippage of the reading levels across the summer from grade to grade. Like how is the kid going to do that even remotely when they're hungry. So I really appreciate the second question about working with community organizations yeah, and working with too. groups to address some of those very real human, physical, and societal issues. Because again, we're just people and the technology, it's related to what we do. It's related to our human experience and our societal experience. I'm really appreciative that they've included this as a real consideration because I think it's a serious serious issue. And I mean, we've talked about digital divide forever, right? Yeah. And what is our solution? Sometimes it's like, okay, well, we'll have more computer access. Well, you know, if the person, again, like hasn't eaten all day or they have a, an illness that's preventing them from doing X, Y, and Z, like those are things that will also impact a digital divide or any divide. So digital divide as part of just a societal division, maybe it's like a symptom of or a part of a larger complex wicked problem. And so it makes sense to take a step back and look at what are solutions to that overall problem. And certainly that's something that schools would have to consider. I'd argue it's probably something that libraries should be taking a look at as well. So not just as the providers of the tech, but working with other community groups as part of the solution to these bigger problems. What else have you been reading, Lydia? <laughs> I see pink highlighter on a piece of paper over there. <laughs> So the the irony and the joke is that actually, as important as, as he is, his actual writing is pretty dense and dull. Ugh. So most of us have experienced his ideas to some degree secondhand through others summarizing it. Yeah, I've only ever, like, I've never read Pear directly. I think I tried once. I, like, Googled an article and I was like, oh, boy. So <laughs> I've, I've only ever read works based on his concept. So I'm very a secondhand Pear knower and lover. <laughs> But this one article to which we will link discusses, I guess, the key points uh, of his theories. And one argument, I suppose, can be considered abstract and impersonal knowledge makes us hate education. A key idea of Papert's critique of modern education is that by learning academics' formal representations of knowledge, students come to hate learning. Papert believed that learning to memorize and compute formulas like F equals MA, completely divorced from its meaning in the world and to a person's life, essentially requires the teachers to lie to children about their relevance. He lamented that teachers around the world must regularly argue, this formula is important and valuable to you, when teachers know it is not, 
and don't even believe it personally themselves. So he was also critical of educational institutions' resistance to the inevitable need for children to refine their theories of ideas over time. He believed that if it is true that people learn by essentially debugging their beliefs, schools should be a place in which debugging is viewed as essential, encouraged, and supported. Yet because of the obsession with teaching the knowledge that academics view most correct, students get the idea that there is right knowledge and wrong knowledge, rather than just useful personal knowledge that is to be improved. This doesn't seem like a big deal, but actually as I reread this, I realize how powerful and completely contrary to what I have been exposed mm. to in public schools and even in university. Uh, tell his, me, tell me, tell his me. His ideas are. <laughs> like essentially, he is the, uh, I don't know if he's a father of constructionism, but what this article is saying without labeling is that learners construct the de debugging is the continual process of revising and adding and taking away. It's a very active way of looking at what happens in our brains when we learn rather than the traditional transmission model of learning, mm -hmm, yeah. right? So you are an empty bucket and I come as an expert and just dump all my knowledge into you mm -hmm. and you absorb it and off you go. In reality, of course, that's not true. We forget things. We learn them and relearn them. We learn them wrong and mm -hmm. later have to adjust it. I'm also not sure that Papert's model is the only true model. Of course, there may be ways to contradict that. But I guess I appreciate how relevant it is in our 21st century, this idea of debugging. Like, well, that, that term obviously is used by the author now. But the idea that there's right and wrong knowledge is definitely my experience mm. in university, right? And when we talk about citation, academic process, writing papers, and even writing books and reading books as a conversation, that's not really a reality because when you present an idea that's a little bit unconventional, doesn't cite the right authors who have been cited by the same uh, institutions, you don't have equal power in that conversation mm. and you don't get listened to. So mm -hmm. what he's arguing for is that relevance, right? Is we began with discussing handathons at Toronto Public Library. There are some other ways to teach robotics and 3D printing by providing examples to the public that have nothing to do with their lives. And yet there's a reason why hands are chosen, right? So what he's arguing here, and this is a retelling of his ideas, is that for children specifically to see what they're learning is important, it needs to reflect their world. And kids' worlds is very different from adults and academics. Mm -hmm. I think adult worlds are also different from academic worlds. <laughs> that too, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, Papert invented his own computing language, which was called Logo. It was essentially a simple, imperative programming language that commanded a turtle to move and turn in space, drawing lines as it did. In that sense, it was simple, but the theorists didn't care about what it was as a programming language, but what ideas the programming language contained and how those ideas help children form new understandings of geometry, space, computation, things like that. That is very meta, if I can say. Mm -hmm. Whoa. <laughs> Overall, in my public education experience, has just been like, get through this. You will never use calculus again, but we just have to teach it because it teaches you abstract thought. Mm -hmm. And even literature classes, we read. I mean, I was lucky in IB. We were exposed a little bit to world literature. But overall, it has very little relation to my life. Maybe children will be able to absorb that immediately, but there's a lot of deep stuff going on here. So, mm -hmm. 
I think about that too with kind of any, like I am old enough now that any tech classes that I took, like computer class in my like K to 12 was focused on like typing. We played Oregon Trail. We had to do Hyper Studio presentations, which was like the precursor to PowerPoint, if you recall Hyper Studio. Basically, that was it. And then I didn't do anything in high school or university with like anything that was considered a computer class. Like that was for other kids to be doing stuff in. (laughs) And certainly that was my experience of computers was that they were a thing that we played with. They were in the basement of our school. We went down to the computer lab and then like we did this thing for an hour and then we left and it wasn't part of like the rest of my life. Weirdly, as an adult, like even though I'm using tech all the time now and, you know, I'm thinking about new tech, I feel like when I've gone to classes, like as an adult, if I've wanted to learn more, like going to a coding workshop or, you know, like how to start a website kind of workshop, it's still taught in a way that is like, here are the steps, follow the steps. And it's not giving kind of context to the tech. It's not making it very relevant to my life and my specific needs. And like, I understand why that happens, I guess. Like it's, it's harder to design a class or to design an instructional environment that would, you know, go there. Or is it? I don't know. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just what we're used to. But certainly as an adult, it's, it's kind of the same experience that I had as a kid. And, you know, within 30 years, I haven't seen much change in that kind of teaching style. And it's what I kind of worry about with websites like code.org or the idea of like, everyone should code, like coding for everyone. Because again, divorced from any context of what this is used for in your life, it loses any relevance to me. So like, why would I do that? And so people make really big arguments about like, oh, you need to know how to code so you can get a job or you need to know how to code so you can stand up to the like massive corporations that are stealing all your data. It's like, well, yes and no, you know, like it's not like what level of coding, what are the ideas behind it that I need to understand? What's the context? So there's so much that goes on behind it. And I think that's really what prepare is trying to talk about and get at and the way that he wants to design his teachings and his thinking about technology really tries to get to that, which I appreciate. Yeah. Nowhere does he mention learning to program a turtle to move in space will get kids jobs. He's concerned with the understanding of learning itself. And just because me and you can read numbers and create a spreadsheet, does that mean we can take on banks? No. No. (laughs) So yes, it's a literacy, but how many people do we know who have completed Code Academy courses, as great as they are, and that knowledge lingers and never gets applied? I am guilty of starting things and leaving them, and I'm sure many people are. You've also mentioned instructional design. That's a huge, ultimately philosophical, you know, we talk about values and context a lot in this podcast because those are the kinds of things that we're interested in. Instructional design reflects philosophical approaches to how learning happens and why it should and what the teacher thinks is important. Reorganizing the lesson about coding a website in such a way that addresses your context, your interests and needs versus 
I believe I'm correct when I refer to the owl problem. I've seen my friends in library technologies talk about this. No, I don't know this. What uh, is it? The owl tutorial style, which is how to draw an owl. Well, draw two circles, connect them, and there it is. You have an owl, which is very much like how websites and coding and oh. JavaScript is, is. But also how any class I've ever been to has been, which is like follow along with the instructor right. who is doing something right. like in Python or whatever. And then he's like, okay, put in, and I say he, because it often is. And then it's like, okay, put in like this, this, and this. Anyone who has a problem, stick your hand up. And I'm like, what are we doing? Like, so basically all I'm trying to do is keep caught up to this person who is just going through rote steps that I don't understand, not connecting it to a larger whole, and then feeling like an idiot at the end of it because other people are like not sticking their hand up. And I'm like, I have no concept of what we're doing right now and this is not working for me. But that's that's what instruction is seen as with a lot of tech, like follow these steps from A to Z and then you have it. Right. Go forth, yep. young Python programmer. I don't do that. Like I, that doesn't work for me. Huge assumptions made, right? But the investment in redesigning that lesson takes time, it takes resources, and it will not necessarily work for every learner. There's also risks from, I guess, learner-centered lessons that they may misinterpret information, they may get the concept wrong, go in a completely different direction, make assumptions, and turn out to be Nazis, no. <laughs> That's always my risk. <laughs> That's always the, the final straw. <laughs> Worst case scenario, Nazi. <laughs> Sometimes we do need a little bit of transmission. We do need to front load them, especially with adults. So no single approach to learning is without risk. But if you're truly committed to kind of this constructionism, you accept the fact that it's a process. It will take time and time again. Uh, so to bring it back to libraries, I guess, Teaching technology to our colleagues and to you know, direct users, so youth, for example, there's different ways we could do it, right? We could just put the Arduino on the table and say, and explain what every pin does and the process and the circuits and just expect them to absorb it and off they go. But I would argue the kind of the challenge-based asking them what they're interested in and what's achievable mm -hmm. in that hour because we reality of time and energy and how tired they mm -hmm. are, what's going on in their lives. Um, all of those are accounted for in a lesson. So I guess it's, it's ultimately a question of philosophy and those larger issues of why are we doing this? How do we value learning? What goes on in a human's brain? So I, I just like... Whoa, deeply. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, you, you've, you've brought those ideas as well, right? Like this is, as librarians, all of that is going on. Yeah. Make us stop thinking about it. Perhaps relating this podcast to our next guest, we will also touch on um, instruction, instructional design, specifically mm -hmm. in technology. So we may or may not bring Papert's ideas, but we encourage you to at least read other people describe him. <laughs> yeah, one of the books that I really like is called uh, Invent to Learn, and it's um, been used in a lot of different contexts about makerspaces in classrooms, but also in libraries. And it lays out an approach that just makes so much sense for running any kind of maker program in terms of what's valued and asking the right questions and failure and its role and not just giving an answer but helping to helping to bring the question out of the person who's working on it so that it so that they're learning how to do that kind of scientific questioning and and that problem solving on their own keeping them curious and at the end ultimately like celebrating 
what went wrong and what went right, and which means celebrating what was learned over the course of that time. So anyway, it's a great book. I'll throw a link up to it too. So we've been talking about learning as a very complex, is it a wicked problem? It's not so much a wicked problem, it's a process, right? It's a human activity that happens whether or not you go to a library or you read books. Just as learning takes shape in a very real context, I wanted to share, so the June issue of American Libraries magazine, uh, which is a publication of the American Library Association, is on fire. <laughs> and one of the fiery pieces has been a summary, a feature of a debate that happened at the ALA midwinter meeting. And this was a panel on library neutrality. So without going into every panelist's speech or, or take on this idea, I wanted to share Emily Drabinsky's contribution to the report, and full remarks are available online. But I'll just read the first paragraph that's mentioned in the article. And so Emily is very active on Twitter, and she mm -hmm. travels a lot. Um, she's very open about her life, and I, I really respect her. I never had a chance to meet her when she came here um, to our city. But she's a coordinator of library instruction at Long, uh, Long Island University in Brooklyn. And I think there are some parallels here between how she looks at libraries and how we've been talking about learning. So she says, libraries are spaces where we encounter real things. Books sit on shelves next to other books, and each book occupies a space that is strictly its own. There are only so many computer terminals in our computer labs, and only so minutes in each day to be parceled out to each seat. Libraries are material, just as library workers and library patrons are. The debate about neutrality asks us to imagine a world where those real things are infinitely fungible, where we can buy and shelve all the books and schedule every event. If we buy 45 copies of Fire and Fury, we can't also buy the run of books from Cave Canham. We have to make decisions about resources. So in many ways, learning is a very immaterial activity, right? So it uses resources. Um, and obviously it takes shape with humans, but it's a very intangible process. We can't point specifically to the moment where me and you understand Python functions. And in fact, it often regresses a little bit, makes leaps, just like a human brain. There's, there's a lot that we don't quite understand. A couple other public librarians and I were invited to give a, a panel discussion at the thing with Tony Samick that she did on intellectual freedom and ethics, something, something, I can't remember what it's called. We'll have to look it up. It, it was a very, I will say, like a humanities kind of a discussion that had happened so far. Very theoretical ideas, like here is what um, freedom means, here is what neutrality means in libraries, from a very high, high level. And I felt a little bit like a black sheep because I came in and was kind of like, all of that is great, but libraries operate within limits. And so we aren't just buying every computer that we can and putting it out on the street and saying, please take one. We have a limited set of resources that we can use and there are restrictions on what we can do with that. So when we limit time that a person can spend on the computer, that's one of the ways that we are, I guess, like impinging on 
a, a kind of freedom. Another way that we do it is by, <clears throat> excuse me, recognizing that we're in a public space and we've decided as a society that there are certain things that we don't want people to be looking at on the computers. And while we like balk at the idea of censorship, there are certain things that people aren't allowed to be looking at on the computer. So porn is the big one, right? And that's part of the terms of agreement. We have a terms of agreement that we set up for um, for anyone who is agreeing to use our internet services. So it makes total sense to me to be bringing an idea like neutrality down to the real world and saying and asking how does this actually play out in our spaces because it's a concept, it's not, it's not a practice. Or if you're turning this concept into a practice, there are real decisions that you have to be making about, about how to implement it and how it actually plays out in a library. And so I think the same with learning, I guess, too, is the same kind of idea. We have to be making careful decisions about how we're approaching tech and learning about tech. I mean, we have limits, you know, we can't necessarily run a program for five hours if that's the length of time that we think is going to be successful. But on the other hand, if that's what's going to make it successful, then maybe we need to readjust our priorities and say, okay, well, we know it's going to take five hours, so what else do we have to sort of adjust in order to do that? Well, we choose to teach, say, robotics, but not high-performance computing for a reason. Mm -hmm. I suppose in purely theoretical way, we could. We could teach everything about algorithms and data literacy and the history of robots, but we make certain choices. And I used to be a little bit guilty of this, you know, kind of as a digital curator. I've always wanted to be a curator because my decisions are pure and <laughs> impartial. And just trust me, I know what You're I'm neutral. doing. You're neutral. <laughs> I'm a librarian. I know what I'm doing. To this day, I take pride in sort of my professional expertise or the time I've invested in learning in depth, say, about organizing data for the humanities. But at the same time, I'm much wiser now that I'm aware that when I organize a digital collection for a particular user group, there are some things I included and excluded, right? And I'm trying to think of ways to stand behind my decisions. Realistically, we won't be questioned on every single tiny choice, but part of the professional responsibility is to think through what happened in that creation of a digital collection. And same in programs, same in collecting books on real shelves. Mm -hmm. It's all the same. Um, so we encourage you all to read the articles from the American Library's uh, June issue. I think many of them are available online. And stay tuned for more discussions with guests on instruction, podcasting, technology, STEM, robotics, makerspaces. Humans. <laughs> the humanity. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening. We are available on Google Play and SoundCloud. So please leave us a review. We will be putting this podcast on iTunes as well. And if you have any questions or ideas that you want to discuss, go to nolibrariansallowed.com and fill us a comment in the contact page. Yay. Thank you. Thank you.